BMNF Tampa, and this is Background Briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the possible reversal of a global trend in which democracies are undermined by authoritarian leaders who destroy democratic institutions, corrupt the rule of law, and install themselves as strongmen leaders. This has happened in Russia and is happening in Hungary and the Philippines and elsewhere. But it seems that Turkey's wannabe dictator could be an exception to this rule due to a mafia boss turned whistleblower's revelations of corruption and criminality among Erdogan's top cronies, which has shaken the country and riveted the population via social media, which circumvents Erdogan's state-controlled media. Joining us for an update on the political disinfectant of truth to power underway in Turkey is Maber Tahrirola who is the project on Middle East Democracies Turkey program coordinator, who was born and raised in Istanbul and is a fellow with the National Endowment for Democracies Penn Campbell Forum on Democracy for 2020-2021. We'll discuss the likelihood that Biden's meeting with Erdogan at the upcoming NATO summit will be testy since the scandal-plagued leader of a NATO country who is buying Russian military equipment while implicated in drug traffic and organized crime, does not have his partner in crime, Donald Trump, protecting him anymore. Then we'll speak with John Nichols, the Washington editor of The Nation, whose latest book is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, about his article at The Nation, Bipartisan is How Republicans Say Sucker. We'll discuss McConnell's pretense at negotiation while vowing that, quote, 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration and the need for the Democrats to unite around the struggle to defend democracy at home and abroad. Then finally, we'll speak with Eric Rashway, Distinguished Professor of History at the University of California, Davis, about his latest book, Just Out, Why the New Deal Matters. He joins us to discuss the New Deal's triumph over domestic fascism and the similar challenges Biden faces with a Republican Party in the thrall of a leader of a failed coup who wants to cheat and lie his way back into power. And joining us now is Mabe Tahirola, who is the Project on Middle East Democracies Turkey Program Coordinator. She was previously a research analyst at the Washington-based think tank Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where she focused on Turkey's domestic politics, foreign policy, and relationship with Washington. And she was born and raised in Istanbul. And Maber is also a fellow with the National Endowment for Democracies, Penn Campbell Forum on Democracy for 2020-2021. Welcome to Background Briefing, Maber Tahirola. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I'm fascinated by this mafia boss who's shaking the politics of Turkey, providing these YouTube videos, which uh, have the, the nation absolutely enthralled. And uh, we're expecting another video momentarily. But so far, the videos have managed to get around the state control media, which 
Erdogan has basically taken over the media, just as Putin has done in Russia and other of these wannabe despots do. But it's still, even in circumventing traditional media through social media, the seven videos so far have been viewed more than 56 million times on YouTube. So what is the real impact? I don't want to get too excited because the idea of one of these terrible dictators... You know, because the real challenge in the world today is between frail democracies and the rule of law and these kind of dictators who get democratically elected and then undo democracy itself. It would be wonderful to see one of them finally brought to justice. So I don't want to get ahead of myself. So where do you think we are in terms of the impact that Pekair is having on Turkish politics? Well, uh, that's a, you put it really well. I don't want to get ahead of myself either, but uh, so far, all the political analysts in Turkey and the commentators um, from multiple political camps seem to be suggesting that this is pretty much showing us the dismantling of uh, the regime that President Erdogan has built over the last 20 years because it's um, uh, the complete unraveling of various power structures that Erdogan's power base and, and regime seems to be based on. So it actually have it, it could have a major impact uh, on Erdogan's prospects right now. I mean, what this man is really doing, this YouTuber, mobster turned YouTuber, as I like to call him, he's spilling out all the government's dirty laundry out in the open and putting it in the public domain. And his allegations include, you know, touch um, very high level officials um, of Erdogan's government, including members of parliament, former prime ministers, former officials, uh, and uh, Erdogan's son-in-law himself, who used to be uh, the finance minister. And these allegations include things like murder or uh, beating up other politicians, opposition politicians, journalists, uh, rape, um, uh, trafficking, cocaine, etc. So the allegations are pretty grave. But that's really not the big problem, because Turkish people knew all of this was happening um, uh, because, you know, this is not new for, uh, you know, Turkey. Um, we've always thought that the state uh, had, um, uh, particularly those who are critical of the government, always knew that the Turkish state had um, uh, pretty close relations with, you know, mafia bosses and all sorts of, all sorts of figures in the underworld um, with ultra-nationalists uh, and engaged in, uh, you know, uh, extrajudicial killings, particularly in the 90s. This was a really big thing. So, you know, it's not that surprising and particularly Erdogan's government itself, this is not the first time there have been really grave accusations of corruption um, to Erdogan's government. So none of this information itself is all too surprising to Turkish people. But what's happening now is that Erdogan's public approval rate is at its lowest that it's ever been. And uh, he seems to be really worried about his prospects. And Turkey's facing an election in two years. Uh, and uh, many opposition leaders are calling for an early election to happen now in the next few months or within the next year. And I think that's a very likely scenario. Um, and all of this is because Erdogan's public approval, like because, you know, the Turkish economy is doing worse than it ever has under his rule in the last 20 years. And the pandemic has made it much worse. Uh, so people are really struggling on the ground. And that has really affected Erdogan's prospects. And there's a real chance that if there's a next election, Erdogan's ruling party 
and himself may not actually be able to secure victory again. Uh, so they, we might actually be able to, you know, we might actually see uh, them being removed from power. And so these allegations uh, coming out at this time is particularly hurting Erdogan. And that's why I think you're seeing a lot of analysis coming out saying this might actually be the end of Erdogan and we might see this mobster YouTuber take down uh, what seems to be an all-powerful president. And the target at the moment of, of uh, Pekeya, the mobster, is uh, Interior Minister Suleiman Soylu. And Pekka sits behind this desk <laughs> and he speaks of <laughs> the mixture of street jargon and, and he's pretty savvy in terms of politics as well. So it's an interesting combination. Um, <laughs> and the background, of course, is that the interior minister extended Pekka's police protection after he left jail and essentially uh, has helped him all, all along, has he not? I mean, uh, he's let out a whole bunch of these mobsters as well. That's, that must have got people's attention. Yes, exactly. I mean, this is really about an internal power struggle happening within the state structure. I mean, these people all colluded for years with one another. But, you know, ever since 2016, when uh, Suleiman Soylu, this interior minister, became interior minister, before that, he was a very influential figure in the ruling party. So this isn't, you know, he didn't just come in to enter the scene in 2016. But since 2016, he's been gaining uh, more power compared to other rival cliques or factions, let's say, within Erdogan's circle. And that seems to have devolved into this uh, rivalry and, uh, you know, uh, between him and this mobster now. And they have turned against one another. And it seems that uh, the mobster is now taking revenge against him. And that's why he has fled to Dubai. And from there, he has decided, to, he, he's saying that I'm going to fight back and I will spill blood and you will see I'm going to put all of your dirty laundry out there. So it's really just infighting and it's fascinating for Turkish people to watch because, um, <laughs> well, both the allegations themselves and also to see how the, the what we thought was a uniform, because Erdogan always likes to project power and, and show that he has his house in order no matter what happens. Um, and we're seeing that he very much does not. And again, I'm speaking with Maber Tahirala, who is the project on Middle East Democracy's Turkey program coordinator. She was previously a research analyst at the Washington-based think tank Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where she focused on Turkey's domestic politics, foreign policy, and relationship with Washington. And she was born and raised in Istanbul. And Maber is also a fellow with the National Endowment for Democracy's Penn Campbell Forum on Democracy for 2020-2021. So there's an old expression, Mabe, uh, that uh, patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. Uh, <laughs> and you could also update that a little with that religion is the last refuge of the scoundrel. We've had any number of evangelical pastors and televangelists in this country caught in all kinds of scandals. <laughs> but what's happening now in Turkey, uh, the only thing we've heard from Erdogan is that on Friday... He inaugurated this controversial mosque in Istanbul in Taksim Square, which was kind of the center, along with Gezi Park, of, of secular Turkey. And this huge, ostentatious mosque is overshadowing the monument of Ataturk, you know, the founder of secular Turkey. So 
there's a lot of symbolism in what happened there, right? And how Absolutely. how does how does this guy get away with the fact that I mean, the Soiler, the Interior Minister, none of these characters in his cabinet lift a finger unless they get permission from from the boss, from Erdogan. So you literally have a situation where this Islamist party is based on piety, but behind the scenes it's just corrupt and evil. So are the people waking up? Are the religious Turks waking up? It seems to be so, and I think that's you're exactly right to point out the inauguration of this massive mosque. It's highly symbolic. The square, Taksim Square, where he built it, um, is actually a big square where a lot of political protests happen um, in in Turkey. And also, eight years ago, we had the biggest uh, protest movement against Erdogan ever. The Gezi Park protests happened there, where the police crushed it quite violently, and it ended up injuring you know thousands of people and killing. Uh, about 10 people, uh, many of which were underage minors, so children. Um, so the fact that he's inaugurating this mosque is hugely symbolic, and he's doing it precisely because he's aware that public approve his public approval rate going down is both a reflection of his complete economic mismanagement and the, the economic situation in Turkey. I mean, people cannot even buy uh, basic basic needs, food uh, right now. That's how bad the economy is. But also because they, so many corruption allegations have come out in the last five, six years alone that the, is the more conservative, pious Islamist base that normally always votes for Erdogan um, seems to be waking up to the fact that this man is not really religious or pious at all. In fact, he's quite corrupt. So Erdogan is going out of, out of his way now uh, to try to show uh, his Muslim credentials and nationalist credentials. And this is, I think, a major reason why he also just a few uh, months ago, last summer, um, uh, uh, turned Hagia Sophia, uh, which was a museum formerly a Byzantine uh, um, uh, church, then turned in secular Turkey into a secular um uh, museum turned it into a mosque, and that was a hugely controversial move. Which uh, you know, President Biden at the time was uh, candidate. Biden had even his, his campaign had issued a statement about it. That's how important that move was. And I think Erdogan made that such an important move at the time, similarly to why he's inaugurating this mosque now, just to show the Turkish people that you know he is in fact that Muslim conservative leader that you know they all voted for and. They all have been voting for, but I really think that these, these, this symbolism, these messages are now falling on deaf ears because people are very aware that he is not the man he is, uh, you know, pretending to be. And also, much more importantly than all these ideological concerns, again, is the economy is so bad. And unless Erdogan finds a way to fix it very quickly, which I don't think he will be able to, um, uh, then it's, it's, you know, likely that he actually may not be able to win the next election, which is, you know, either going to be in the next year or two. So the Interior Minister, of course, Soylu, he has oversight over the police and the prisons and and the mafia by Pekir was sentenced to 14 years in prison in 2007. And he also has control over internal security. And Soylu has just cut off security cooperation with the United States. And also we've learned that after the hijacking of the aircraft by the dictator in uh, Belarus, 
NATO got together to decide what to do. They were extremely upset and wanted to do something very punitive. But Turkey, being a member of NATO, uh, watered down the response. So what's going on there? Because Biden is supposed to meet with Erdogan. I think it, it's probably when he's going to be meeting in Geneva with Putin sometime after that. But surely the Drug Enforcement Administration is telling Biden that Erdogan's government is riddled with corruption and in collusion with Maduro in Venezuela, which is a main a shipment point for cocaine, which then is shipped into Turkey and then, and then into Europe. So I guess we don't know in what kind of political shape Erdogan will be in whatever it is going to be several weeks before they meet. What do you expect to happen there? Yes, the President Biden and Erdogan are supposed to meet in about two weeks at the NATO summit. Um, and, uh, you know, President Biden has made it very clear that he has no love for Erdogan or, you know, strong men around the world, uh, unlike his predecessor, of course, Trump. Um, and, and, you know, he has made that very clear. He has tried to avoid engaging with Erdogan since uh, he was inaugurated in, in January. They've only had, Erdogan and, and, and Biden have only had one phone call. And Biden made that phone call to Erdogan the day before he made a historic decision by recognizing the mass killings of Armenians under the Ottoman Empire as a genocide, which is something for decades, many, every president um, has refused to do out of deference to Turkey in order not to uh, shake relations with Turkey. I mean, Turkey is a is a very important NATO ally. It actually is the, has the second command the second largest army in NATO after the US. So, um, and, and, and that must have been a very awkward call. And he just called them and said, listen, I'm about to do this tomorrow. Uh, so we know how Biden, you know, feels about Erdogan, but he can't completely avoid Erdogan because again, they're both NATO members. And in about two weeks, they're going to be meeting up at this summit. And uh, they agreed to have on the sidelines a one-on-one -on -one meeting. I think that's going to be a very awkward one because as you said, I mean, both the, the corruption uh, is so bad in, in Turkey and everybody knows that now it's out in the open but we've also known it because these allegations are by no means new um, at the same time Erdogan has completely changed Turkey's uh, uh, political system in the last 10-15 years. Turkey was always an aspiring, always an imperfect democracy, but ever since the establishment of the Republic in the 1920s, it was always, you know, trying to be pro-Western and uh, and trying to perfect its democracy and, and advance its democracy into a full-fledged one, and always had a multi-party democratic system. So there were always problems with Turkish democracy, but it was always, you know, it wasn't a question whether Turkey wanted to be authoritarian. Erdogan completely changed that and has built an, a, a fully authoritarian one-man regime in Turkey. And so for Turkey's NATO allies and particularly Turkey's European neighbors who are watching this transformation, uh, it's, it's very scary and disconcerting uh, where Erdogan is taking Turkey. So I think Biden is also aware of that beyond the, the corruption allegations. Another thing that you mentioned, you know, I'm glad you, you mentioned the Venezuela connection because that is also not new. I mean, these massive corruption, corrupt networks, underground networks in Turkey with money laundering, etc., uh, 
have also, as we know, the U.S. is investigating many of them uh, for delving U.S. sanctions on other uh, uh, horrible authoritarian regimes like Maduro's regime in Venezuela, but also the Iranian regime. And just two years ago, and there's an ongoing case right now uh, in the Southern District of New York, which is a very important court, as you know, a national security case going on to one of Turkey's top uh, state-owned banks for um, evading U.S. sanctions on Iran. And I think there are other investigations going on into whether Turkey has been doing the same with Venezuela because all these networks and allegations which this mobster YouTuber is now also spilling out gradually in this video series um, clearly point point to uh, what we Turkey watchers have always worried um, was happening. And so I think it directly impacts U.S. law, Turkish corruption. It's not just a domestic issue for Turkey, but it also has uh, clear international implications and implications for uh, from a U.S. law point of view. So I think when Biden and Erdogan meet, and these are these issues that I've mentioned are not even the entirety of the issues that that the U.S. and Turkey have. I mean, there are so many other bilateral problems. Turkey has bought this S-400 missile defense system from Russia, uh, you know, as a NATO member. That's a pretty strange thing for Turkey to do. The U.S. has sanctioned Turkey for doing that and threw Turkey out of this um, F-35 um, program that Turkey was a, a very important part of. And, you know, that seems to be the top sticking point right now because these missile defense systems that Turkey bought, bought from Russia, uh, the U.S. argues, um, uh, can seriously compromise the stealth capabilities of the F-35 uh, fighter jets, which is America's next generation fighter jets. So, you know, we're, you know, America's planning on using these for the next 30 years. And, uh, you know, Turkey buying this system from Russia is both really strange from a point of view that, you know, if you're a NATO member, why would you do that? But also, why would you threaten and compromise, uh, potentially compromise uh, a key NATO equipment with the F-35? So we haven't even gotten into those beyond, you know, this is all beyond the corruption and the sanctions evasion and how Erdogan is turning Turkey into this uh, awful one-man regime where there's severe crackdowns and repression on freedom of speech and freedom, uh, freedom of assembly and all basic freedoms. So it's certainly going to be an incredibly awkward meeting. And I think Biden is going to just want to uh, give a strong message to Erdogan that the more he uh, rules Turkey in this way, both domestically and in terms of Turkey's foreign policy, uh, Turkey and U.S. under the Biden administration are not going to have uh, good ties. Uh, but I think other, other than that, he's going to want to cut it short and, and just leave because, uh, you know, he seems to be the type of president that doesn't really uh, have time of day for, uh, you know, other strongmen <laughs> leaders like Erdogan, again, unlike President Trump, uh, who really did entertain Erdogan for, for four years pretty well. Well, Mabel Tahrir well, Mabet Tahirola, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Mabea Tahirola, who is the Project on Middle East Democracies Turkey Program Coordinator. She was previously a research analyst at the Washington-based Think Tank Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where she focused on Turkey's domestic politics, foreign policy, and relationship with Washington. And she was born in Istanbul and is a fellow with the National Endowment for Democracy's Penn Campbell Forum on Democracy for 2020-2021.
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing McConnell's pretense at negotiation while vowing that 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration and the need for the Democrats to unite around the struggle to defend democracy at home and abroad. MNF comes from our members and Frog Song Organics. Each week, Frog Song Organics delivers healthy produce and pasture-raised meats directly to homes and businesses in the Tampa Bay area. More at frogsongorganics.com, featuring seasonal crops, online shopping, and CSA. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are John Nichols, who is The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against Jobless Economy and A Citizenless Democracy, and Horseman of the Trump Apocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America, and most recently, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. And he has an article at The Nation, Bipartisan is How Republicans Say Sucker. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols. It's great to be with you, my friend. Well, thanks for joining us. And as a matter of fact, John, I'm, I'm going to be interviewing the grandsons of both FDR and Henry Wallace uh, next week. <laughs> it's well, uh, just I, apropos I, your last book, you know. I've done uh, a number of events with members of the Wallace family since the book came out. And uh, it's, they're great interviews. These are very savvy, very civic-spirited folks, and I know uh, many Roosevelt grandchildren as well. Uh, but what you'll find is that they will tell you that there are tremendous parallels between what we saw in the 1930s and what we see now on a whole host of levels. And so it's, I look forward to hearing what you, uh, what you, to, what you discuss. So let's talk about your article and what happened this week in the United States Senate, which is just shameful. I mean, it wasn't as if the bill that they were voting on was the Green New Deal. This was something that was close to all of them because they were all attacked and their lives were put in danger by this fascist mob sicked on the Capitol by Donald Trump who wanted to stop the certification of the election for Joe Biden. It's just a naked coup attempt, and it, it's so disgustingly anti-democratic, it's amazing that all of these people haven't been run out of town, but instead you couldn't even get the Republicans to agree to a commission looking into it in a 54 to 35 vote. They voted it down because we have this absurd threshold of 60 votes. No other democracy uh, operates with such a margin, 54 to 35. That's a pretty <laughs> substantial margin in any democracy, but not enough mm -hmm. here in America. So this is what we have, and how in God's name is Biden going to get anything done with these damn Republicans, particularly with Mitch McConnell, who has vowed 
to say what did he say again i've got it here somewhere uh he's 100 he's 100 devoted to uh blocking this administration's initiatives that's a slight paraphrase but the 100 yeah. percent is definitely there yeah i got the actual quote here 100 percent of my focus is on stopping this new administration so there you have it so how does biden get past these people but you framed it out well, and I think it's important to uh, you know begin with that vote on the the commission because you know remember in the Senate they were voting on something that Republicans and Democrats had sorted out. There, this wasn't something that the Democrats came waltzing in with. The idea of the bipartisan commission to investigate what happened on January sixth was developed in collaboration between Republican members of the House and Democratic members. And they they set up a classic uh, commission model, very much in the American tradition, things we've seen before, uh, and it was rejected. Now, I, I think that gets to the heart of the matter here. These Republicans are, A, uh, no longer dealing in, in reality at all. They're dealing completely in a pure... Uh, you know, Donald Trump defined uh, fantasy world that uh, suggests that the 2020 election is somehow uh, uncertain in its results, that what happened on January 6th wasn't really an insurrection, that, uh, you know, the big problem today is Joe Biden, not Donald Trump. And, and so they're not going to cooperate and they aren't going to cooperate on major things that are needed for the United States. And they're certainly not going to cooperate on, you know, initiatives that advance the economic and social and racial justice agenda that Biden and the Democrats were elected on. And so now we get to that, the answer to your question. And it is that if Joe Biden continues to, you know, quote unquote, talk with the Republicans, to negotiate with the Republicans, to, you know, frame out his administration to somehow, you know, imagine that there will be a place of cooperation. He will ultimately be delayed, distracted, and very possibly disempowered by this process. The president needs to uh, pull the brakes, and, and so do other Democrats, and recognize there's not a place for cooperation on most issues. If they find a place for cooperation, great. But don't devote days, weeks, months to that. You know, recognize that it is not possible. And in that recognition, move to pass legislation with the narrow but real majorities that they have. It, it, no, other, no other option makes sense. Well, Remember, as you point out in your article, John, not a single Republican senator voted for the popular and vital COVID relief package, and the mm -hmm. Democrats passed it in any case via reconciliation. And I think what Mitch McConnell is up to, and others have pointed this out, is he's playing along with the idea that there is a bipartisan negotiation going on over the infrastructure package. Because he's, you know, it started out with ridiculously low, and now it's close to a trillion, but it's still ridiculously low, and he's mm -hmm. playing that game to avoid the possibility that the Democrats will do a reconciliation on the infrastructure package. You think that's what's going on? Absolutely, it's the case. Look, the Republicans are kind of in a no-lose situation here. Um, they can uh, look bipartisan, quote-unquote, and they can look cooperative uh, for as long as, as Biden will let them do it. 
And what that means is they can continue to walk in absurdly low proposals, which gut out everything that Biden is seeking to do uh, beyond, you know, a, a kind of a baseline, you know, 1930s style infrastructure bill. Um, and, you know, as far as they're concerned, if this goes on for months, even years, that's fine, you know, because Biden doesn't accomplish anything. Biden doesn't get what he, he wants passed. And um, they still get the, the advantage because they'll, they'll if, if indeed they were to get a deal from Biden, let's say that Biden, you know, gutted out more than half of what he had proposed, got rid of uh, the environmental components of his infrastructure bill, got rid of the uh, components that aid caregivers and others, you know, basically anything from the 21st century. Um, then, you know, they probably a good portion still wouldn't vote for it because he's not negotiating with the whole Republican caucus. He's negotiating with a handful of folks. Uh, you could still see a, a filibuster blocking uh, progress. And even if it did get passed, you know, I think you'd end up in a situation very similar to what you saw in 2010. Uh, a handful of Republicans did cooperate after much negotiation with Barack Obama to pass an incredibly scaled down stimulus bill. Uh, that gutted out most of what Obama had originally asked for. And then the Republicans ran against Obama as a big spender. And so, um, you know, look, the reality is you have to learn from the past. And what the past tells us is that talk about bipartisanship is no longer real. It is a strategy. And it's a strategy that Republicans deploy in moments when they are not in power. And they bet, usually correctly, that our, you know, dim-witted media um, will uh, go along with it and say, oh, well, this is bipartisanship, so that's great. Um, you know, that's, you know, we would love to see bipartisanship. No, that is not the case. Uh, the fact is that the American people are very strongly supportive of the components of the American Jobs Plan. They, they don't, they're not crying out for bipartisanship. Uh, the only people that are saying that bipartisanship is necessary or good or wise uh, is, you know, some D.C. talkers and a bunch of Republicans. And again, I'm speaking with John Nichols, who is the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against the Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy, Horseman of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America, and most recently, the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. And he has an article at The Nation, Bipartisan is How Republicans Say Sucker. So, given that you have this impossible situation with the Republican Senate and the filibuster threshold, Biden's $6 trillion budget, which is aimed at bringing back the middle class, and, and he's got uh, FDR's portrait now above the Resolute desk, so it's pretty clear what his ambitions are, although he doesn't have <laughs> the massive majority that FDR had in the House and Senate, and the Electoral College, hardly, far from it. But there is a $3.6 trillion tax hike on the rich and corporations that is vital to get this budget package through. And my fear, John, is that as bad as it is now with these Republican filibustering, etc., and pretending to be bipartisan, but being, as, as McConnell said, just ruthlessly trying to kill anything that Biden does, 
don't you think the banking lobby is going to go after Mansion and Cinema and Coons and and Bennett and peel them off? And mm. if you don't have the money from raising taxes on the rich and corporations, you're not going to be able to pay for the infrastructure. So you're dead in the water. Yeah, look, this is the complexity, and this is what I've argued from the start of this thing. Um, instead of negotiating with the Republicans, Biden should be negotiating with the Democrats, and he should recognize that the Democratic Party has, you know, a complex wing within it that is still very, very closely tied uh, to corporate power and to the big banks. And this wing is not as unsubstantial. It exists in the House and the Senate. And and that's hard. It, it, look, I'm not, not telling you that those would be easy negotiations. And, you know, it may be difficult to get to places where you can accomplish everything you want to accomplish, but that's where the energy should be. It shouldn't be in negotiating with the Republicans uh, because the Republicans are, you know, not going to give him any more than Manchin and, you know, Coons and some of these others are. So Biden ought to be focused on uniting his caucus around the idea of reconciliation and then going for what he can get in that context rather than, you know, spending days, weeks, months negotiating with Republicans who are, you know, just like in the Charlie Brown cartoon, they're, they're like Lucy. Um, they will pull the football as, as Biden comes running up to kick it. Uh, and, and we know that to be the case. The evidence is very clear on this. So uh, Biden needs to, to make a pause, rethink, and then, yes, He's going to still have to uh, have some difficult negotiations with Democrats. But in that case, Biden's in a position where he can actually rally the base of the Democratic Party um, to put pressure on Democratic senators to do the right thing. And, yeah, the bankers will be there as well. But, you know, that's a place where you can actually get things done. And remember, if we, we always talk about Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson, you know, as presidents who, you know, did big things. And they were. There's simply no question of that. And they had big majorities or pretty big majorities uh, without a doubt. And that, that made it easier. But the important thing to understand is that both Roosevelt and Johnson were tough players with their own parties. They they did put pressure on members of their own party uh, to line up and, and do the things that were necessary to, you know, A, achieve the common good, and B, frankly, achieve the political good of getting big things done. Well, just in the last uh, few minutes, uh, John, I'm concerned about the growth of authoritarianism and even fascism in this country, exemplified by this fascist wannabe dictator who controls the Republican Party uh, and who was responsible for the coup attempt against American democracy on January the 6th, the very thing that the Republican senators don't want to talk about and want to pretend and seven out of ten Republicans think it was actually Antifa that stormed the Capitol to make Trump look bad. So we are in a terrible state as a country here and you have anti-democratic uh, exercises underway at the state levels to produce minority Republican governments, and then they're going to pass anti-democratic laws uh, that end up in the front of these courts that are now being stacked by right-wing judges. And so we'll end up with, in starting in 2022 and 2024, we could end up with a minoritarian president approved by a minoritarian Senate, and then courts that will uphold these anti-democratic practices. So that is grim, but it's a realistic mm -hmm. scenario. Yeah, it's what we should be concerned about. Look, 
the it's you know we go back to why I wrote the book on the fight to the soul of the Democratic Party. It was because in the aftermath of World War II, my concern was that Democrats weren't conscious enough of uh, the many ways in which authoritarians would assert themselves in the United States. And my argument is that at repeated points over the last you know 60, 70 years, we've seen some troubling developments. Uh, now it's come to to I think the full concern and it's a legitimate one uh look here's the basic reality on january 6th supporters of donald trump attacked the capital of the united states to try and stop the counting of electoral votes that would finish the process of electing a new president a president who had defeated trump uh they did not succeed they failed however uh in that deadly insurrection which left five people dead including a police officer uh, and which had long-term repercussions, uh, they, they showed how far they are willing to go. Now, they were operating in a context where Democrats had a couple things on their side. They had control of the House. They had a newly achieved, although not yet fully realized, control of the Senate. Uh, they had, you know, uh, they had some basic things in place. And frankly, they had a number of Republicans. This is not, not, given as much attention as it should, who were really shocked and really jarred and who voted uh, with the Democrats to accept those results. Now, imagine a different scenario. Imagine a scenario where the Republicans were clearly in control of the House and the Senate uh, going into that January 6th moment. And, uh, and frankly, they had this memory of, of a previous moment where there had been genuine threats, where there had been, you know, genuine violence. Uh, is there a possibility that uh, a Democratic House and Senate would reject electoral votes and say, nope, we, we don't accept the results of this election? Um, that's what we're, that's the prospect we look at when we think about 2024, the prospect that if uh, Republicans take control of the House and Senate, and then say Trump runs again and loses, uh, there might not be an acceptance of the result. Now, that's a very blunt assessment. Not everybody thinks we'll get to that point, but it is certainly something that needs to be considered because that tells us how close we are to an authoritarian moment, to a fascistic moment, where the results of an election are no longer accepted and an unelected official um, or an unelected cabal uh, has the potential to take power, and that's this is this is troubling stuff. It's the kind of thing that ought to be discussed now, and frankly, it's the kind of question that ought to be put to Republicans. Do you want to be a part of this thing, uh, or are you committed to democracy? To her credit, Liz Cheney uh, very bluntly has said she's committed to democracy. So as you know, Adam Kitzinger and a handful of others. But the reality is, as the vote on the nine six, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, on the vote on the January sixth commission showed us, uh, uh, the center of gravity in the Republican Party is on the side of an authoritarian uh, approach uh, to politics. And remember, authoritarianism isn't just the imposition of its will. Authoritarianism is also fascism, as it's been seen, uh, is also about denying reality, denying the facts on the ground, denying you know, what has occurred, literally rewriting history to benefit a political individual or force. Uh, and that, I think, is uh, what we saw in 
this last few days in our Congress. Well, John Nichols, I thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure, my friend, uh, even on this rather uh, sad moment. But I will remind you that Memorial Day is coming, and, uh, and in this country we do celebrate uh, fighting uh, against fascism and beating it. Well, again, I've been speaking with John Nichols, who is the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent, and his books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against the Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, and Horsemen of the Trump Apocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America, and most recently, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and his latest article at The Nation is Bipartisan is How Republicans Say Sucker. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the New Deal's triumph over domestic fascism and the similar challenges Biden faces with the Republican Party in the thrall of a leader of a failed coup who wants to cheat and lie his way back into power. Handful of senators don't pass legislation and marches alone can't bring integration when human respect is disintegrating. This whole crazy world is just too frustrating and you tell me I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Eric Rauschway, who's a distinguished professor of history at the University of California, Davis, and the author of Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash Over the New Deal. And his latest book just out is Why the New Deal Matters. Welcome to Background Briefing, Eric Rauschway. Thanks for having me. And it would seem that the New Deal matters to President Biden because he has placed a large portrait of FDR above the Resolute Desk in the White House, and it's pretty clear that he has some massive ambitions here. Obviously, he doesn't have Roosevelt's extraordinary majority in the House and Senate. In fact, he's, his majority in the, in the Senate is hanging by a thread, and it's very narrow in the House. So let's start with some of the analogies here between FDR and Biden. Um, how do you see it? Well, I think the first thing to point out, it's not uh, uh, remarkable that uh, Biden is trying to make substantial parallels between himself and Roosevelt. It's remarkable that he's trying to do it even superficially. It's been a long time since the Democrats wanted to acknowledge their debt to Franklin Roosevelt. So it really is quite a quite a novelty, I think, in modern political terms. But just to talk about the substantive parallels for a second, um, both Biden and Roosevelt were elected against incumbent presidents who had manifestly failed in dealing with a global crisis. The case of Herbert Hoover in 1932 was, of course, the Great Depression, the economic crisis that led also to a political crisis of democracy around the world. And of course, as you know, last year, it was the global pandemic 
Um, it seems quite likely that had it not been for these crises, uh, Hoover and Trump respectively would have been reelected. So uh, both Biden and Roosevelt uh, benefited from the manifest incompetence of their predecessors. And by promising, uh, by contrast, an activist approach to dealing with these crises. And that meant that the first thing that each of them should deliver if they wanted to you know, sort of honored the pact that they had made with the voters was action in the teeth of the crisis. Uh, Roosevelt did that by his famous uh, first 100 days, which provided all kinds of relief and employment um, in the face of the Great Depression, as well as rescuing the banking system. And Biden has at least started to provide that by the um, relief package and the improved management of the pandemic. Uh, as you say, it seems like he would at least like to invoke the idea of going a bit further. And as you know, his infrastructure bill is still toiling its way through preliminary phases. Um, if that should go through, that would merit a much more substantive comparison to Franklin Roosevelt. And of course, Roosevelt implemented the New Deal with a Democratic Party beholden to the segregationist South. And it was necessary, of course, for the majorities that he had in the Congress and in the Electoral College. But the Democratic Party, of course, has changed. And now the segregationists are now pretty much the core of the Republican Party. There's been this massive switch. And also in that environment, in the 1930s, you had the rise of fascism. And Roosevelt, of course, was deeply opposed to it, but it had its, it was flourishing here within our body politic in the United States in the 1930s, and we have it today. I mean, without sounding hyperbolic, there's fascistic tendencies now in the Republican Party today. The big lie. I mean, Goebbels would be proud of Trump's big lie, frankly. Yeah, I mean, to your first point that that uh, Roosevelt's Democratic Party was very different from the one that we have today is, of course, correct. And that somewhat uh, undercuts the, the simple observation that he had large Democratic majorities. Many of the Democrats then in Congress were not actually favorable to large chunks of the New Deal, precisely because it threatened uh, Jim Crow and uh, segregation. And it's the New Deal that changes that, right? It was with the New Deal that black voters became Democrats because as compromised as it was by Roosevelt's uh, segregationist voters in the South, it was nevertheless um, a program that provided better opportunities to black Americans than they had ever previously had. And they could see in it the seeds of an improved democracy. Indeed, by the end of his second term, Roosevelt was uh, establishing within his Justice Department a civil rights division to enforce, or rather what became a civil rights division to enforce federal civil rights law. So um, it's with Roosevelt that the, uh, the Democratic Party becomes the party of civil rights. And that's part of what you pointed out in the second part of your, of your question, which is that Roosevelt very much saw democracy as under threat in the 1930s. And his response was not really to compromise so much with uh, fascists, but rather to find ways to oppose them, uh, both abroad and within the United States. The principal form of opposition at first was, of course, the New Deal, which by illustrating to the American people that their government could work for them, uh, you know, diffused any sense that there need be some other form of government. And then, of course, ultimately, his form of opposition to fascism was mobilization for war against Hitler. So, the New Deal, of course, 
there is a, <laughs> a Green New Deal out there. And, of course, the Green New Deal is not... Those words were never spoken by Biden in his infrastructure package, even though there are many aspects of, of a Green New Deal in there in terms of the electrification of transportation through solar and wind to get rid of coal and many other aspects of it as well. But, you know, you can't even get a bipartisan bill through this Senate to deal with the assault on the Capitol on January the 6th, where the very senators themselves who voted against this January the 6th commission, they were attacked. And they were their party, their, their vice president of their party, they were going to lynch him. And yet they voted against him. So you have a 54 to 35 Senate vote on the January 6th commission. In any democracy... 54 to 35, that ratio <laughs> is, is you know, it's not a landslide, but it's a hell of a good margin. And we know that two Democrats didn't vote, including Kirsten Sinema, and along with, uh, I think, six Republicans. So this is amazing that American democracy has this supermajority threshold before anything gets done. So what happened back then with Roosevelt? Did he have to... I mean, he didn't need, he had the majorities at any rate, but what was the nature of the filibuster back then? Well, I think there's a few things to point out here. First of all, uh, as you correctly indicate, any other democracy would look at the Senate and think that that was something they could just as well leave and not try to emulate. Uh, it remains one of the, uh, for obvious reasons, unique features of the United States Constitution, and that goes double for the Electoral College, uh, which it is a key component, and these are anti-majoritarian uh, institutions that we have. The filibuster is, as you know, sort of adding just insults to constitutional injury in that it is not written into uh, the constitution of the laws, but it is simply a feature of the Senate that you need the supermajority to close debate and to move on to an actual vote. And in the 1930s, as indeed going back to its origin, the filibuster was trotted out specifically to oppose civil rights legislation. And the principal example in the 1930s, uh, which I discuss in the book, was that um, uh, there were liberal Democrats and some liberal Republicans who wanted to have a federal anti-lynching bill, and Southern Democrats were adamantly opposed to it and filibustered it. And indeed, one of them told one of Roosevelt's sons that they would be happy to filibuster it till 2038, if that's what it took. And at that time, the Southern Democrats were able to use the filibuster essentially to prevent uh, Roosevelt going forward with New Deal legislation or later war preparedness legislation, unless he laid off the more aggressive civil rights issues like the anti-lynching bill. So the filibuster was used for those purposes. Um, it wasn't used to the extent that we have it now, and yet there's still an important parallel, which is to say that Roosevelt understood that he needed to democratize the Democratic Party, again, to extend um, uh, the franchise to black voters particularly, and to use the institutions of the federal government to do that. Uh, it is not clear that that... Um, Thought has dawned on all the Democrats in the United States Senate, uh, yet that they need to press forward with democratizing the electorate, lest they lose 